And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me on the Skype line today is T.M. Moore. He's the principal of the Fellowship of Ialba, a spiritual fellowship in the Celtic Christian tradition, and he's also the content manager for the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. T.M., it's great to have you on the program with us today. Thanks, Dan. It's a, it's a privilege and pleasure to be with you. You know, I've heard your name before and uh, never had the opportunity or privilege to talk with you. There was an article you recently wrote for the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, you write a, a series of studies. It's a viewpoint study, mm-hmm. and this really caught my eye. It's called The Sovereignty of God in Christmas. Mm-hmm. Beautiful title, and I was wondering if we could just kind of work through some of the highlights of this of this article. Maybe you could kind of introduce it to us, and then I can ask a couple of questions. Let me uh, just explain what this series is. Viewpoint is a weekly series that I produce that consists of seven daily devotionals slash podcasts. They're all built around a single theme each week. And then uh, all the podcasts are bundled together into a free download and made available for people to use as personal study or for discussion groups or or whatever it may be. And uh, this series on the sovereignty of God in Christmas is simply one of probably 200 or so of those we've done over the past several years. And uh, it's a great privilege and pleasure to be able to do these. It gives me an opportunity to sort out some of my own thinking and to uh, put before people some perspectives on the Christian faith that maybe they're not familiar with but would like to have an opportunity to consider. And I thought one of those might be uh, just a bit of a different take on Christmas. I think sometimes it's helpful uh, when you know we become so familiar with certain things, like Christmas is always about Jesus and the baby in the manger and the angels and all that sort of thing. And I think there's always a, a, a danger with familiarity that we're missing something that's even more glorious and grander and more more beautiful and more powerful than the thing that's obvious that's right in front of us. I think that's possibly true, at least, in, the, in, in Christmas, and uh, so I wanted to speak to the sovereignty of God, how Christmas testifies in so many different ways to the sovereignty of God, to the greatness and majesty and power of God, in ways that maybe we don't, we don't notice or we, we take for granted. Mm. In your article, the beginning part, you talk about the fullness of time. Uh, you mentioned the scope of divine sovereignty. What what were you getting at there in that part? Well, you know, you know, Paul uses that phrase in Galatians 4, that in the fullness of times, Christ was brought forth for our redemption. And I, I, I pondered that phrase for many years. The fullness of, what do you mean by that? The fullness of time. That word really means like something is up to the brim and ready to sort of spill over. So I started looking into the historical context in which Christ was born. And there are all these things that came together uh, that made it just the right time for the gospel to be introduced into the world. I mentioned, for example, the Rome, the fact of the Roman Empire, the fact that uh, uh, you, know, you had the, the Pax Romana that was uh, keeping the nations from warring at one another for a period of 100 years or so. You had this excellent system of Roman roads that went all over. You know, that phrase, all roads lead to Rome, is based on that notion of the Roman road system. They they built roads that were so good that many of them are still in use today. And uh, Pompey had swept the uh, 
Mediterranean, free of pirates, so that you could travel on the Mediterranean unobstructed. And uh, Alexander the Great had been used of God to establish the Greek language pretty much throughout that whole area. So he had all these things and, and many more. I didn't mention all of the, the things uh, that, that were characteristic of this period that made it just the right time for the gospel to, to begin to be uh, a message to be heard throughout the empire. So you have to ask yourself the question, well, how did that happen? Was that just by chance that that happened or was God at work? preparing the way, setting the stage, getting ready for the coming of his son and of his kingdom and of the good news in such a way as that it would be, it would find an environment that was ready and that could sustain the fairly rapid expansion of the gospel. And so when Paul says this was the fullness of time, I think what he was saying is that this time was just right. In fact, I think there's one translation uh, of the book of Galatians. I'm not I don't remember which one it was, that uses that phrase. When the time was just right, God sent forth his son. Mm -hmm. So I think we can see evidence of the fact that God was at work uh, orchestrating historical events, cultural situations, and so forth to make it just the right time for the gospel to come. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. And um, um, one of the questions, this is just a wonderful study, and I would encourage people to look it up. We'll be posting a, a link on our website uh, for this podcast uh, after the program airs. But there's some uh, questions uh, for reflection, discussion. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the questions was, uh, how should understanding that God is sovereign affect our daily lives as Christians? So this is, this is terribly practical. We try to make it practical. We don't want to just you know, give people some ideas to think about. We want to give them some opportunities to internalize the things that we're teaching. And then you see each one of those lessons has a little next steps thing. Here's something you can do with this now. Right. Now that you've thought this through and tried to bring this into yourself, think about the application. Now, here's something you could do to actually express your faith or to engage others in this kind of conversation. Mm. And that's part of the structure of each of these studies uh, every every week. Next week's uh, series, for example, is on the kingdom values. What kind of values should we hold in our souls to enable us to realize our calling as citizens and ambassadors of the kingdom of God? And it'll be set up just like this. It's a seven-lesson study with questions at the end of each one and a next step item. So that's what we try to do. Uh, it's just a wonderful study. And um, Thanks, one, one, uh, one thing that caught my eye also was this uh, you mentioned genealogy, mm -hmm. and um, maybe to some people that, that's terribly dry, but it's there in the Scriptures for a purpose. Can you share with us some of that thinking? Yeah, you see these genealogies in various places, Book of Genesis, for example, most prominently in First Chronicles, and then again in, in, the, in the Gospels, these long lists of, of the begats, begat, begat, begat. So if you wonder, what, what, what can this really mean? Well, if you, if you just take the, the genealogy from First Chronicles, which was probably written uh, as the people were returning from exile in, in Babylon to try to connect to those people who were returning with those who had been in Jerusalem prior to the exile to, to create that bridge. So the genealogies create a kind of historical bridge. They, they allow people to see some kind of continuity. You look at the way that people today are fascinated with uh, learning about their their roots. I mean, even today, genealogies matter. People 
subscribe to these things. They go online and try to find out as much as they can about where they came from. They want to see some continuity between them and somebody in the in the distant past. There's a sense of being historically rooted that comes with that. But in Hebrew society in the Old Testament, there's also a sense of knowing what your place was. Because remember, all the tribes had assigned places in the land of promise. And if you sort of knew where your place was and you knew where you belonged and where you fit in society, what your contribution might be, who your people were, and you could I, you could have some sense of an identity that was more local and perhaps more meaningful and more familiar. When it comes to Jesus, those genealogies are intended to sort of bridge all the way back through the important people of through important people of the Old Testament, for example, King David and Abraham, to whom the promises of God's covenant were given, and then all the way back to Adam, who's the father of the whole human human race, and and then, and then to push all this forward to that babe in the in the manger. These genealogies that God preserved the descent of these people over all these years they point to some significant things that tell us something about the lineage of Jesus and what redounds to him as a result of being the son of David, and so forth. So I think it's interesting to study these from the pers- from the larger perspective, biblically, of what do they cue, or what do they bear witness to, or what do they remind us of. There's a very interesting genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth, that again, it's one of those that the, the book of Ruth ends with this genealogy. Okay, ho-hum, let, let's go on to the next book. But it's it's so very important because the purpose is to connect Ruth, first of all, with Tamar, who was the mother of Perez. So that's where the genealogy begins. And then because Tamar was a Gentile. And so we want to connect this Gentile Ruth with this Tamar Gentile, who's incorporated into the line that leads through Ruth to David. (laughs) The last name, the last word in the book of Ruth is David. The book of Ruth begins in the period of Judges, and it ends with David. It was probably constructed during the period of Israel's civil war after the death of Saul, when probably David's enemies were saying, yeah, he's got a Moabite in his background. You can't have him as king. you know." So this book is produced to justify David. These lineages had real power. They communicated to people who knew how to read them, and that's the case with the lineage of Jesus as well. Well, it's rich, and uh, I recall that the the book of Matthew certainly has a long uh, list of genealogy, and, and and comes, you know, it's like fourteen generations, another fourteen, another fourteen, and, mm-hmm. and then Christ is born. Yeah. Today, we're talking with T. M. Moore about an article, uh, a study that he's written called "The Sovereignty of God in Christmas." Another point in your article is uh, entitled "The King of Life." Um, can you share with us, uh, as you put it in this article, there's bogus sovereigns and then, obviously, the real sovereign. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you look today at what's going on in the world today, and we, we, we kind of be, have become accustomed to the notion that somehow or another life is ours to manipulate and even perhaps to create, certainly to terminate if we see fit. I've often asked the question uh, of people who are pro-choice, what qualifies a, a, a pregnant woman to determine whether or not that thing in her womb, which is 
a living thing, everybody agrees to it. Every, everybody will say, yes, it's alive. What qualifies a pregnant woman to decide whether or not that living thing should be allowed to continue living? The answer is nothing. Nothing qualifies her except convenience. And so in worshiping the God of convenience, she makes a decision and exercises a kind of a bogus sovereignty over the life of an unborn infant. Mm-hmm. We see the same thing with people who want to create life in Petri dishes, you know, which involves throwing away a lot of life in order to get one. Or people who want to talk about cloning life or even now creating different forms of life, which we see some labs around the country have been experimenting with and, and actually trying to do, creating life almost in a Frankenstein kind of way. It raises the question, who is the Lord of life anyway? Mm. And I think the Christmas story, given the situation with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and the situation with Mary, says pretty clearly, God is the bestower of life. And he's the one who decides when life should come and, and, and so forth. There's a lot of mystery there and a lot of unanswered questions. But, it, but the whole situation invites us to step back and realize that God is sovereign in the giving of life. And he is not obstructed or hindered in his purposes of giving life by uh, even the fact that Mary was not married and had never known a man. God can give life and did in the womb of this of this virgin. So I think the Christmas reminds us of who is sovereign over life and therefore whom we should be looking to in order to understand how we ought to approach the taking and, and giving uh, of life. Mm. There was a question that you posed towards the end of, of this part, and you're asking, well, first you state that God is pleased to withhold children from some couples, then you ask the question, how can he be glorified by a couple not being able to have children? Yeah. That is um, almost a freeing question, because you realize that um, I, I really can rest in him, um, whatever he brings my way. Yes, it, and it does, but it also asks the question uh, of, of such a couple, uh, does this necessarily, because we can't conceive, does this necessarily mean that God doesn't want us to have a child? I don't think the answer to that is yes. I have a friend who's a pastor in, in Delaware, and he and his wife have uh, four natural children and two children who are handicapped and, and physically disabled that they adopted from Romania. Mm-hmm. For couples who cannot conceive, there are plenty of children who would love to have a home and be adopted. And that's certainly one opportunity to fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply uh, that God has given to us as people. It, It also means that we might be freed, like you say, from the responsibility of child raising to serve the Lord more fully in other kinds of capacities, serving in the church and having more time available for those kinds of things. It doesn't mean in any way that God has not looked favorably upon us or that God has not blessed us. It's just that we need to take the circumstances that God, the Lord of life, has brought into our life and figure out what they mean or signify for us in terms of how we go forward in serving Him. Mm-hmm. We are very uh, in tune nowadays, it seems, to politics and it seems that the news, <laughs> the media, it's it's 100% politics, or, or yeah. so it feels, and and missing many other news stories. But um, you mentioned something about politics, even, 
in your in your study. Can you help us there? Well, we 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 do we do live in a time in which increasingly people have have yielded to the idea that politics is everything and everything is politics. That at the end of the day, the solutions to all our ills uh, are in the hands of government, and that's where we ought to look, and that's what we ought to be considering when we figure out how to fix things or how to solve things or how to go forward. What's the government going to do? Increasingly, politicians campaign on that that idea that, that we need government to fix all our ills and so forth, as though somehow or another, government were the sovereign to look to when it comes to realizing the fullness of life as we would, as we would like to, to have it. But the story of Christmas reminds us that God is sovereign, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whithersoever he will. When Caesar declared that a census should be taken, probably because, you know, maybe revenues were down a little bit or they had made an adjustment in the system. Who knows why he chose to make this uh, decree and required everyone to go back to their hometown and register in the multitudes of people who had to be in movement across the Roman Empire was a an engaged couple from Nazareth who had to journey back to Bethlehem in order to register for this taxation. And while they were there, Mary brought forth her son, precisely as the prophet Micah had said, to be born uh, in the city uh, of Bethlehem. So God moved the heart of the Roman emperor. Of course, he's not cognizant of that. He's not trying to serve the Lord here. But the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He moves it whithersoever he will. Same thing with Herod. In that terrible story of the slaughter of the innocents, I think that's the other account that I deal with there. There's a prophecy to be fulfilled. There's a movement of Jesus to Egypt that has to be accomplished so that the prophecy that says, I've called my son forth out of Egypt, so that that can be fulfilled. And in order to accomplish that, uh, Herod's insecurities were uh, brought into play in, in a terrible and horrible way. But at the same time, Matthew made sure that we understood those people would have been comforted by the prophecies uh, of God so that they would not have seen that, at least perhaps not all of them, uh, would have seen that as uh, an unmitigated a tragedy because they knew, like David said, when his son died, he will not return to me, but I will go to him. And that's what that prophecy in Jeremiah 31 virtually promises of these people. You'll see these children again someday, so be comforted. So yeah, you, 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 if the sea, and, and you could even step back even further and you could, you could look at uh, some of the things I've already mentioned about the Roman Empire and Alexander the Great and, and, and others, that you can see God, God is at work in the heart of these significant political figures to induce them to do his will. You go all the way back to Isaiah, where uh, God says, I'm raising up uh, Cyrus as a vehicle to return my people from captivity in Babylon and Persia back to the land of Israel. Cyrus hadn't even been born yet at the time. So, again, this is, shows the sovereignty of God over matters of politics. And, and, and therefore, to us, we can look at a political situation that we're in, and, and whether we wring our hands over it or, or, or however we respond, we can always say, you know, the Lord's at work here. We just need to wait on the Lord, be faithful in our own callings, and see what the Lord will do in his way and time. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, because sometimes you get the, or I anyway, get the feeling that, oh man, the government overreach is killing us, or 
um, the undermining of our Constitution or, or bringing us into a uh, bizarre form of slavery. Uh, it's really not the America that my forefathers knew, and is it really is easy to get wringing your hands and 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 you bring out the point too that each of us has a calling, and and some are called to to working in government in a godly way, and and some are certainly not. Well, so yeah, but all of us, you know, the opening words of the preamble of our Constitution say that we the people. Government begins with us, and therefore we have responsibilities that we need to understand and commit ourselves to before the Lord so as to be able to carry them out in a way that will honor him and further his kingdom. Mm, yes. Now, uh, we've got about uh, five minutes left in our discussion today. Why don't you pick what you want to talk about here as we wrap up these thoughts about the sovereignty of God in Christmas? I think one of the most important things uh, is the appearance of the angels and the heavenly host to the shepherds on that plain. We, 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 we sing about this, angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the plain. And, and we don't recognize the significance of this. The, the appearance of these angels uh, signified that with the birth of Christ, the, 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 the veil had been parted between the unseen world and the seen world. And a new avenue of communion had been opened up between that realm and and this. The writer of Hebrews says that faith, saving faith, is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And if we haven't, you know, been able to tie into that uh, relationship that we have with departed saints, with angels, with Christ on his throne and all that glory that's imaged in the Psalms and the book of Revelation and, and elsewhere, then we're missing something significant about what happened at Christmas. What happened at Christmas was not just that Jesus came and was born in a manger, significant as that was. What happened is that God opened up an avenue for bringing the spiritual world into the material world in a permanent way. It's called the kingdom of God. And the advance of that having begun at that time, is continuing even in our day, and of the increase of Christ's government and kingdom, there will be no end. Oh, that's, that's wonderful, wonderful summary. Um, today we're talking with uh, T.M. Moore, and um, he's written this wonderful study, The Sovereignty of God in Christmas. And T.M., uh, could you describe to our listeners, if they would like to download this study um, how, how do they go about doing that? All they have to do is go to the Colson Center, www.colsoncenter.org, which is the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And under the banner of the Worldview Journal, look for the Viewpoint column. This is a daily column that's published uh, on a weekly theme, and then every week the theme is bundled together into a study that could be used by an individual or by groups. Uh, or you can uh, subscribe to Viewpoint and receive it in your inbox every single day. And uh, once you get to one of the articles, if you read all the way to the end, it'll tell you, click here to receive the free uh, study for this week, which this week is, I guess, the Sovereignty of God and Christmas. So just go to the Colson Center, look for the Viewpoint column, read the current one, go all the way to the bottom and click on the little offer for the free PDF. Oh, very good. And we'll also post instructions uh, up on our website uh, under this podcast. And TM Moore, thank you so much for taking time from your very busy schedule and uh, talking with our listeners today. I want to thank you very much for that. 
My, my privilege, Dan. It's a great privilege and joy to participate in your excellent work. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Praise the Lord, and uh, TM will look forward maybe sometime in the future. We can touch base again on this program and uh, learn more from you. And to our listeners, if you have a question for TM, by all means, feel free to email us, and we can forward your question to him. Our address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Come to Bethlehem and see Christ whose birth the angels sing Come adore on Christ the Lord, the newborn King, Gloria. Let us sing in its chalices day, in its chalices day. Yeah.